Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Howdy, Patreon. What's we up, y'all? We are back once again. Today, we're going to talk about the life-changing magic of gentrification. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested how we're going to connect these two Dude, things. I have, ever since you talked about this episode, I've been wondering how we're going to connect tidying up and gentrification. Well, we have a little storage closet here. I noticed you had a map on the wall, and you had like all these strings connecting all the different dots. <laughs> <laughs> That's my side gig. <laughs> it was like Detroit and uh, uh, uncluttered drawers, mm-hmm. and you hadn't figured it out yet. But we're gonna figure There's it out pattern. today. Initially, we wanted to talk about gentrification because I read. I, I'm a big fan of, of this guy, Jason Segedy. Mm. Um, he is the urban planner for the city of Akron. Akron, Ohio, which is a lot like Dayton. Dayton and yeah. Akron are essentially the same city. Yeah, Akron is, uh, isn't it like one of the most affordable places to live? It, it is. It's yeah. not as affordable as Dayton, but it's pretty close, yeah. yeah. Um, and 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 I think what, what we're going to find today is we hear about this word. And the, the real thing I wanted to talk about was when we're talking about whether it's tidying up or gentrification, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about like some of the biases we have just with the language that we use. Well, uh, where do you want to start, man? Do you want to talk about... Well, I can talk about what I thought gentrification was before I started digging into it. Let's do that. Jordan, can you put that over there for me? I'll get that off camera. So, so uh, when I think of gentrification, basically what I my impression was is that you have these poor neighborhoods mm-hmm. that are... Uh, you know, full of downtrodden folks. And right. then all of a sudden you get a bunch of rich people mm-hmm. who start buying up properties and they start to hike up uh, uh, the property value, yeah. which therefore increases uh, the tax, mm-hmm. which therefore increases uh, property, I'm, I'm sorry, increases property tax, which then increases the rent sure. that these downtrodden folks are paying. And it gets to a point where rent gets so high that they have to move out and then you end up with this gentrified neighborhood right. uh, and, and there's a lot of, you know, displacement is one of the things, is one of the things that really stands out to me when I think, when I think about gentrification. Yeah. D- displacement is, is the biggest one. And the second biggest one is cost of living, as you were just alluding to with yeah. the rent. But then of course, everything around there. I mean, when you and I moved from Dayton, Ohio, um, we moved to Missoula, Montana, and it was considerably more expensive rent was more expensive uh certainly the cost of goods was more expensive than dayton uh, meals food and and you would expect that especially because it's in the middle of nowhere so you're shipping a lot of stuff in i mean there's no fresh avocados in february in missoula montana i'm shocked like the sushi in missoula is not terrible man (laughs) it's not terrible i agree with that i mean Uh, it's like three out of five stars but dude i mean you would expect the middle of nowhere like not to even have a sushi place yeah that's true and and the the thing with missoula was we we moved there and the cost of goods cost of living Mm -hmm. if that had happened to dayton where we lived or if it happened uh in the trailer park where you lived in florida for a while when, when 
uh, that's the weird thing about about trailer parks. So you never hear anyone about anyone gentrifying trailer parks. There's never been a worry <laughs> about uh, gentrifying trailer parks. Now, of course, someone in the Patreon comments is going to be like, "Well, there is this one trailer park in oh, Malibu." Or- maybe we should just throw this caveat out there for all of our listeners. Um, anything that Josh and I talk about, you know, we, you and I are covering the majority of uh, of a certain topic, I think. Yeah. And there are always going to be exceptions to the rule. Right. So calling out an exception, like if, if you say something like, oh, uh, no one never gentrified a trailer park, there is no need for for anyone to recall that one or two examples yeah. of, of trailer parks that got gentrified. I mean, by, by and large, this is true, is yes. all we're saying. Yeah. yeah. And so when I think about that, I, I read this, the thing that, that moved me toward this direction, and then eventually we'll talk about tidying up and, and connect the dots here, because you all, you patron, pa- patrons, by the way, shout out to the whole Patreon audience. Yeah. You guys have been interacting. The community tab has been great. So cool. Um, and it's really awesome to see all these questions and feedback. There are over 100 people that commented on this this tidying up post mm. with their own thoughts. Like, not just comment like, good job, but like, here are my detailed thoughts. And people are all have different beliefs. And that was mm. beautiful. And the reason I want to have this conversation with you, Ryan, about gentrification is I also had that belief like you, like gentrification is inherently a bad thing. And I think in many instances, it it still is, it can be be, a bad thing. Well, I I think also too, I I assume that gentrification was this, uh, it was divisive, especially when it comes to like race. I, I, I also I also uh, had that impression as well, well. And and the word you brought up earlier was was displacement, right? And displacement is a big worry. However, it's less of a worry because of gentrification. The much bigger worry, and this is what kicked this whole conversation off, was this article I read uh, from this Jason guy, the urban planner in in Akron. We'll put a link to this yeah. in, in the show notes. It's called Displacement by Design. And the subtitle of it was An Obsession with Gentrification Obscures the Urban Problem. Concentrated Poverty. So let's talk about this. Okay. Uh, the National Urban Policy Conversation, particularly with regards to affordability, housing policy, and gentrification is completely dominated by voices from the superstar cities on the coast. San Francisco, Seattle. LA. Yeah. Uh, New York. And, and, then, and then you break it down from there. Like if you're in LA, people are talking about the gentrification of Boyle Heights right now, mm-hmm. which does seem to be a bit problematic in, in some in, in some places there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same with New York. You look at Harlem, it's a totally different Harlem from what it was. Um, yeah, or Brooklyn. Like, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All, yeah, Williamsburg or yeah, I Greenpoint. When, or, when you stayed with our good friend Mike Adkins... In, in bedside, bed-sty. and like you're hearing gunshots outside. Literally, I, I, I like <laughs> counted them like sheep as I was going to sleep. I was sleeping on his couch. My novel was based on the, the well, a good chunk of my novel was based on my experience there in bedside. But now bedside is like now it's it's no longer the home of Biggie Smalls and Jay Z. Right. It's I mean it is, but like now it's like Betsy Smalls and <laughs> <laughs> right. All right, uh, continuing on here. Um, Malik's book, uh, let's see here, there's this guy, Malik. Malik's book reminds us that while downtowns and some favored close-in close-in neighborhoods may be thriving, the vast majority of urban neighborhoods in our older post-industrial cities are getting worse and experiencing visible, potentially irreversible decline. So let's go back mm, for a second. Yeah. He's talking about Akron, but you and I are from Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. And, and 
you I remember you were doing business to business sales for a while. Part of your territory was like North and West Dayton. Yeah. And West Dayton is is notoriously downtrodden, high crime area, mm-hmm. but there's some businesses sort of on the outskirts that um and the thing that I realized after reading this article is Man, the best thing, one not the best thing, but one of the best things that could happen to West Dayton would be some sort of gentrification. Mm. Investment in the neighborhood. Well, yeah, because if you think about it, that would lead to, well, grocery stores. Right. Yeah, it would Yeah, it would lead to uh, these these dilapidated houses. I mean, I'm pretty sure you can get a house for like 25, 35,000 bucks easy yeah, in, in, West in West Dayton. Dayton. In West Dayton, you can get a lot of houses for $8,000. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Uh, over 10,000 abandoned houses there. Uh, and it continues to grow. Uh, there are some problems, though, right? And, mm-hmm. and I mean, I one of my sort of fantasies uh, is often about moving back to Dayton yeah. and and contributing to the community there. Now, you and I have, have done our best to contribute to the community, even from afar with the grocery store and, mm-hmm. and everything else, but uh, and always just bringing attention to it and, mm-hmm. and uh, helping the community in ways that we can monetarily. But the the you know one, one fantasy I have is like, well, okay, the what about going back and actually helping mm-hmm. let's take the word gentrify gentrify out of it and what about improving the neighborhoods right yeah. there's a significant problem in doing that though i mean I, if if i were to move back to dayton tomorrow mm-hmm. and me and bex and ella we we bought a house a very affordable house mm-hmm. that was a fixer-upper on yeah. the edge of town on the west side um so right dunbar neighborhood something like that something that's relatively safe um, I'd have to send Ella to a private school. Oh yeah, because uh, podcast Sean and I were just talking about this the other day. They just did a uh, well, a study on on the uh, 605 school districts in uh, the state of Ohio. Okay. So there's a ton of school districts, and um, Cleveland was second to last okay. of 604th. Dayton was 605th. Oh wow. Dayton Public Schools are the worst worst schools in the seventh largest state in the country. And you know what, man? It's not for a lack of trying, man. Because, like, I know people involved in the schooling in Dayton, Mm -hmm. and there are some really passionate people who are trying to make those school systems better. That's amazing to me that that they're last. Absolutely, like dead last. And you're right. It doesn't mean that... uh, it's individual teachers' jobs. Or it's it's an entire it's an amalgamation of problems, and it's easy for us. Just like with gentrification, mm. it's easy to point and say that's a problem. Yeah. But the truth is, there are all these problems, and just like when there are successes, there are all these successes. There are all these factors in success. Yeah. And so, even if I were to move back to Dayton, I would move to Oakwood probably. Because there's great schools, great public schools there. Yeah. Oakwood, for those not informed, it's uh, if you're standing at the University of Dayton and you throw a rock across the street, that's south, Oakwood. Yeah, south, right? Yes, south, of, south of, of the University of Dayton. So it's essentially in Dayton. They just they just partitioned off this little six thousand person city. Yeah, uh, I'm saying that in, in vocal quotes here. It's a little tiny city that has really good public schools. Yeah. And that's the the only difference. I mean, it's in Dayton. It is Dayton, yeah. except they have good schools. Right. Um, but that then causes a problem because then you're not paying taxes into the the system that you're trying to help, and yeah. and so there are all these sort of weird incentives. There are all these these weird disincentives. But let's continue here. There are articles and blog posts, <clears throat> a plenty, focusing on 
the very real improvements in a small handful of revitalizing neighborhoods, running the ideological gamut from mindless Chamber of Commerce boosterism to far-left gentrification hand-waving. So what does that paragraph mean? Explain that paragraph to me. Well, I think the next one explains it <laughs> oh, here. Oh, okay. But it's all too rare to read anything about the equality, about the equally very real and worsening problems of poverty, disinvestment, and segregation mm. that affect exponentially more urban residents in these cities. So, Man, uh, that's one thing that really stood out to me digging into this topic. Mm-hmm. We do not incentivize affordable housing. No. we do. There is nothing that incentivizes a contractor to create affordable housing for people like we are because we are we are a capitalist system i'm not speaking out against capitalism but we are a money first country Mm -hmm. and when you put money first well the people who don't have the have nots Mm uh they are uh they're not going to be looked out for as much as the 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 haves right and and what he's illustrating here is like yes there's a lot of like yelling and shouting and tweeting or whatever about Look, my neighborhood's being gentrified. I live in in Harlem, or I, I live in uh, Boyle Best, Heights, yeah, or, or Bedside, yeah. or whatever. And you know what? There probably are some problems there, and that makes the news because it's sexy, right? It's mm. it's there are the problems are sexy. Yeah. But here's some that is it, so interesting. Here's that, a very unsexy problem, and th- hmm. this problem that that Jason is outlining here is the bigger uh, key to displacement. Is people have left these neighborhoods. Right. The the neighborhood that podcast Sean's mom is from is she's from Trotwood, mm. which is West Dayton. And uh, I mean, as a little kid, I remember going to the the mall over there, which no longer exists, Salem Mall. And man, it, it's a different world now. You know, the I, I remember picking Colin up from the bus, the Greyhound bus station there back in 2012. Yeah. And it's actually a nice bus station. It's yeah, I mean <laughs> for bus stations relative to the rest of Trotwood. Yeah. But the thing is there is there's a beauty in the sort of emptiness there. It's mm. a lot like Detroit in a way, which we'll hopefully we'll get to in a second. I got this great article about the the improvements around Detroit. Yeah. Um and so what he what Jason is saying here is we obsess about revitalization while ignoring displacement by decline. So again, this means that the displacement by decline means to me that you've got someone who lives in a place like Bed-Stuy and they get out. They they, they they have a better opportunity and they they will leave that downtrodden area for a better opportunity. Right. It's it's uh it's what we did to Dayton. We left Dayton. Yeah. Um and I, I just have to be open about that. Like we op- we left for four months and ended up not moving back. But um, and it's not to say that we won't ever move back. But yeah. it's it's something that's that's constantly in in my mind that I often think about. But I think the best example is over the Rhine in date or in uh, Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, you and I. So uh, let me. T- I lived in Cincinnati during the 2001 riots. <laughs> That's crazy, man. Um, and and I had a trash can thrown at my car. I was driving through Avondale, and um, I I remember those riots. And you went to Over the Rhine. It was the at the time yeah. the second most dangerous neighborhood in all of the United States. Yeah. South Side Chicago was number one. Yeah, and then Over the Rhine Over was the Rhine. Two. If you lived there at the time, I think there were 7,000 residents at, at the time, mm. um, somewhere around there. If you lived in Over the Rhine, you had a one in four chance of being the victim of a violent crime. Wow. Put that in perspective. You lived in, I think, uh, Mason, Ohio at the time. Uh, yeah, or Lebanon. Okay. Yeah. I think it's 200, 1 in 200,000. Wow. 
So one in four versus one in two hundred thousand. Right. So it, it, it to me, it's not surprising that people try to get out of that situation. Absolutely, try and get out because not only is it dangerous, but there's no, very little opportunity, uh, and you don't have the, the amount of certainty to thrive at all. Mm. However, there's this great group there, uh, three C three CDC, I think is, is is what they're called, and. Um, they started buying up blocks and over the rhyme one block at a time and revitalizing them uh, early oddies. And now it's like nice hipster coffee shops. And it's Williamsburg. Farmers markets. Yeah, and yeah. It's unbelievable. Uh, like, yeah, just over it's the one little... of the nicest. Here's why, so it's though. about 15 years, 20 years that it's yeah, yeah taken. About, about 15 years, but it was a slow burn for a long time. In fact, they did it one block at a time. You could buy a $400,000 condo, but across the street, they were selling crack. Yeah. Uh, like literally, I used to read blogs about this where they're like they're taking pictures out their window, like here's where I'm living right now. But like there's a, there's, yeah. but one block at a time, they started to revitalize it, mm. and they did so in a way that didn't displace people the way that you would think. And part of that though is because at one point, over the Rhine was the densest populated neighborhood. Mm. In the entire country. Wow. It's called Over the Rhine because Canal Street, downtown Cincinnati, used to be a canal. And Over the Rhine was a German neighborhood because it was right, you would go over the canal mm. to get to get go home. If you were oh. a German worker who lived downtown or who worked downtown Cincinnati, you crossed over the canal, which they just called the Rhine, like the Rhine River in Germany. You know, it's funny you, you bring that up. It just makes me think about how this. Um segregation of different cultures and race like this has been ever since you know people have been coming to the united states you've got your irish irish neighborhoods you got your german neighborhoods you have uh your whatever um so i mean this i guess it's been around for a while is what i'm trying to say absolutely and however it has been exacerbated by mm. certain policies i mean certainly jim crow in the united states mm. everything before 1964 yeah. was was forced segregation yeah. today what we have is self segregation right. which is um not as bad but it's equally pernicious and, and it's not as bad because it's not it's not mandated. Uh, I, I grew up in an all black neighborhood. Was literally one of two white people who lived there. My mother was the other white person. Yeah. Um, but the uh, we we chose to to live there. Right. It was it was affordable. Uh, in fact, we were just back there filming uh, yeah. less than a year ago, filming that the house I grew up in. And um, what I what I've realized after doing some of this this research here is. The best case scenario isn't bed or Williamsburg, where people are, in some instances, being displaced. Mm. Probably not as much as, as the media makes it out to be, mm -hmm. but there are certainly areas where people are being displaced because rents are going up, the cost of living, etc. Um, the best case scenario is over the Rhine, because it was so dense, it was densely populated, but Ryan, there used to be 70,000 people who lived there. Mm. And then over many decades, 90% of the people left. So the wow. reason people weren't, be, weren't being displaced is because there was so much emptiness there. They had already been displaced mm. over many years mm. of whether it's government policies or white flight in the, the 60s and 70s, um, subsequent black flight and, and business flight. But what happens if you have a neighborhood right now with, we're, we're here in Hollywood, right? Mm -hmm. 
And I mean, I don't know how many people live in this area, but it's a lot. It's densely populated. Yeah. Imagine if 90% of the people left here. Oh, it'd be, it'd be desolate. It'd be crazy. Right. Yeah. And But that's what happened mm. in over the Rhine. That's what happened in West Dayton. That's what happens in a lot of these places. And then businesses leave. Mm. And when businesses leave, that's a problem. That is a much bigger problem yeah. because you no longer have access to the services. Um, and then, of Reminds course, me of Middletown. Middletown, Ohio is a great example. My mother grew up in Middletown. Yeah. If you go down, in fact, I have dreams about this sometimes because we used to spend a ton of time in Middletown growing up. I've never seen so many empty storefronts in my life. It's unbelievable. Even more than like downtown Dayton. I mean, it's it's Absolutely. crazy. It's crazy. It's if you go down because downtown Middletown is so far away from the highway, mm. and all of the commerce of the last forty years happened near I-75, mm-hmm. downtown Middletown is way, way down by the river, and yeah. it's so hard to get there. Yep. Middletown, Ohio is uh, named because it's right in between Dayton and, and Cincinnati, Middletown. Um, it's a steel town, manufacturing town. Yeah, AK Steel <laughs> yeah. used to be there. Or they're still there, but not in the capacity they used to be. Exactly. Right. And, and and when you're a, a one business town like that, like Dayton was like Akron, Akron, you know, uh, tire manufacturing capital of the world for a long, long time. Yeah. But they don't make a single tire there anymore, at least not for uh, consumer use. Mm. Um, let's dive back into this and I'll try to wrap up this article uh, and then we'll get more into more about less here. Uh, we hear far less about, uh, oh, this is, yeah, this is, where, where, yeah, we hear, oh, here we go. We hear a lot about the potential evil, evils of hipsters coffee shops and bicycles <laughs> <laughs> them damn kids on their bikes <laughs> their coffee and <laughs> yeah uh along with murky allegations of displacement by gentrification levied by activists and academics mm. we hear far less about the primarily black middle class residents fleeing previously stable urban neighborhoods for the suburbs each year displacement by decline while the poor are left behind in crumbling communities by the way it's i'm not sure i mean maybe uh, black middle class part of it. It's the white middle class as well. I mean, uh, Sean, when when we were living in Dayton, he lived in East Dayton, mm-hmm. um, and East Dayton is pr- primarily uh, white, um, lower to middle class um, neighborhood. And and I mean, where Sean lived was closer to the Air Force Base, so it, it, you you have you have a lot of government employees there too. But what? what was going on there is like as your neighborhood declines what do you do you leave you leave it doesn't matter if you're black or white or hispanic or asian or yeah and the people who can afford to leave leave right and the ones that can't afford to leave they stay right and what jason is saying here is man that that's a problem how do we address that problem how do we focus our attention away from gentrification Mm -hmm. because this is happening far more you go to akron you go to youngstown you go to fort wayne indiana you go to saginaw michigan or flint or pontiac Mm -hmm. you you go to grand rapids um you're going to um peoria illinois Mm. there there are all of these cities that are a lot like this you know what you might call rust belt cities uh buffalo rochester uh think about rochester which is still a relatively thriving city compared to everyone else i mentioned but when kodak essentially left there i don't even know if they're in business at all anymore yeah, they are. but yeah. but they they have maybe 10 percent of the employees they once had there they don't have all the the huge r&d labs they used to have up there mm. but um they're so they're still there but not it's essentially a different company right yeah. um 
And and so when when that leaves, so does a lot of the the jobs. And then attracting people to come to these places mm-hmm. becomes more and more difficult. It is unbelievable to me how one company, one conglomerate, can affect a city. And I mean, when you think about it, it does make sense, though. Like, let's you know, go, going back to Dayton, you've got GM. They're manufacturing where some part of I don't know if it was full cars or. No, they were doing a bunch of full cars. They were doing uh, Chevys and Saabs. Yeah, yeah. so you had had GM that Uh was in Dayton, and then you had all these machining shops pop up because uh, hundreds of them yes because With hundreds of employees each yeah i mean when i was that was my territory like a lot of those uh machine shops yeah we used to call warehouse row and i <clears throat> i remember um one of the business owners telling me how you know when gm left he like he thought he was never going to make it and somehow he figured out how to get new contracts with different companies and stuff but but anyway you've got a machine shops and then you've got people working at these machine shops that want to go buy uh, you know, non-essential goods or even essential goods, mm-hmm. but just because of GM, you've got this um, just this net of businesses that form around it. Mm-hmm. And then when GM pulls out, it's like it just it, it starts collapse. to crumble. Yeah, yeah. And you can go find a bunch of warehouse space now. Thankfully, there's some good gentrification going on in North Dayton since we left since 2012. Uh, remember the Turks in that documentary that that we watched? Yeah. So, so there are a bunch of Turks who moved in. I think uh, maybe twelve hundred of them or so have, have moved there in the last uh, five, six I years. Realize, I thought North Dayton was getting worse, but it's getting better. Yeah, yeah. So what they've done is they've created this whole Turkish neighborhood. Uh, well, Turkish is not correct. They're they're Russian Turks. They're mm. they're ethnic Turks. Um, and are you talking? Is North Dayton like where the where our old resale store was that we used to? No, not that that North Dayton. That's okay. that, that's that's. Uh, what is that? Butler Township. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that that's farther north. I'm I'm talking just north of downtown. Okay. Uh, northeast a little bit. Okay. Um, but you have all of these. You have all these Turks who have come in and they saw opportunity. They're like, the house is here. Like, in fact, in that documentary, the PBS documentary, uh, America in Decline, I think it was called. Um, you he was driving by. He's like, I bought that one for ten thousand. I bought that house for twenty five thousand. And mm. they just started fixing them all up. Yeah. And and they built this whole community. And I'm like, oh, this is this is the type of gentrification we need. Yeah. It's community. Let's not call it gentrification because that's such a a bad term. What we need is a bunch of people to come in and tidy up the neighborhood. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> there's the segue. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, speaking of tidying up a neighborhood, and we'll put the rest of that article. It's a very long article. Well, you know, I really... There's a couple other points I thought were interesting in this article, man. Okay. Um, so, the... Let me see if I can find it here. The... Uh, give me one second. Sure. While you're going through that, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll just say this, that there's other other article that we'll put a, a link to, Sean, uh, in the show notes. Detroit condo bought for ninety thousand in twenty twelve sells for one point two five million in twenty eighteen, and here's why that's good. That's the uh, title of the article. Mm. See, and, uh, oh. and and really, what what this lends itself to is Detroit, as many people know, has become sort of um, a desolation porn on online, right? Like right. if you want to go look at. Uh, the decay of the American city, mm. Detroit has been the place to photograph because some of the most beautiful structures. And by the way, I think that's why Over the Rhine did so well, Ryan. Over the Rhine, to me, is the most beautiful architecture in the entire country. And I've been to 49 states. And I think Over the Rhine, the Italianate brick buildings there and the old hardwoods and 
I think it's the most beautiful architecture in the entire country. And what they're doing to revitalize that place is is truly amazing. Yeah. And you're seeing this now in places like Detroit, where it shows that it's possible to, I mean, you have to come in at the right time or whatever, but there's this article where where it's it's basically just talking about how um, <clears throat> wealth generation previously in low value areas has become impossible, especially in the Rust Belt. But places like Detroit are showing that, hey, this might be possible. Buying a $90,000 condo, working really hard, yeah. to, a lot of sweat equity went into it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you can sell it for a million dollars later. Um, that goes to show you that there is hope on the horizon for even places like Youngstown, which has the biggest decline of the entire country. Yeah. Uh, there is hope there. Mm -hmm. I think about, we, have, we had a friend who bought a house in East Nashville, I think in 2011, 2012, somewhere around there, mm -hmm. and ended up selling it just a few years later, like three years later for twice what he paid for it yeah. without even doing it much right. to it. You know, a little, little paint and little, you know. Little lipstick and rouge. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and he turned it into something because that area was beginning to revitalize. So maybe we don't use the word gentrification. Mm. We use the word revitalization or yeah. or maybe we just say tidying up sean so yeah with that i mean we can move on from that article i, I do like how uh this this article by jason it, it talks about how gentrification has kind of become a useless word because yes. it is um there, it's just a very broad state or uh, it covers a very broad amount of topics i guess um the, the real point i was thinking about was in this article it's actually in this one that you were just talking about and and really with what happens is that uh, I'm just going to read straight from this article. Cash purchases often become the predominant means of buying homes in low value areas. So the the uh, neighborhood becomes more downtrodden, mm -hmm. value decreases. So then now you've got these opportunities like in West Dayton where you can buy a house with cash for like 8,000 bucks. Which by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this is a, you're, you're bringing up a really important point here. People who live in these neighborhoods, poor to, to lower middle class people mm -hmm. in particular, yeah are often homeowners in these neighborhoods. So by and large, and you'll, you'll see that in, in these articles here, mm -hmm. um, that they own houses in these neighborhoods. And so it's even more, they have an investment in the neighborhood. Yeah. Where, whereas if you go elsewhere in the country, like if, you, if you're if you poor and you live in Los Angeles, good mm -hmm. luck buying a house here. Right. It's er, San Francisco, forget about it. There's right. no, no chance. But if you're living in Youngstown or Dayton or Fort Wayne or, or, or Flint or East St. Louis, you have the opportunity to own your own home. Mm -hmm. And so you have a stake in the neighborhood as well. Absolutely. So this goes on, this paragraph goes on to say, uh, so the, uh, again, cash purchases often become the predominant means of buying homes in low value areas, leading to the ironic outcome that low values incentivize investors flush with cash to buy homes and rent them while making potential low income and middle income buyers less likely to buy. So what you have are, uh, like you were just describing in North Dayton, you've got these lower income uh, neighborhoods that actually have pretty decent houses. Right. They just need some, uh, you know, a little bit of re revitalizing. Yeah. So people or a lot in some cases. Right. Yeah. But people. But, but that's that's the cost, the sweat yeah. equity. Yeah. Absolutely. So people come in and they buy up these houses as an investment. Mm -hmm. Well, it's again, it's kind of ironic how you've got these uh, low income houses and it just breeds uh, revitalization. It, it 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 is inviting revitalization because right. of how low the the 
the prices get on these houses. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And and so when you when you're going through and you're looking at all of this, realize that the decline equals more displacement, and displacement equals more decline. Yeah. And the more decline equals more displacement. And then you end up with, with a lot of these places that... And part of it is we have to accept that Detroit will never be the Detroit of the 1960s. No. And I think that's the first step. We can't, we can't cling to the past. Right. The question is, how do we move forward? How do we do that with our, with our own lives? Or how mm-hmm. do we do that with our own cities? Mm-hmm. And, and not, not stay stuck in like, well, the jobs... The, the the auto manufacturing jobs are going to come back. Some of them might. I mean, in Dayton, we've actually seen that with the the old GM plant in Moraine now is yeah. turned into a, a windshield manufacturing uh, plant. Mm-hmm. People get paid less there. Um, they're non-union, etc. But uh, a lot of the people who worked there before at least have jobs now and have brought a lot of meaning back to their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, being the the opioid epidemic uh the the epicenter mm. of opioids being dayton ohio a lot of that has to do with with meaning yeah. and when people feel like displaced mm-hmm. isn't that the definition of losing meaning yeah and and Absolutely. so re is finding that meaning participating in the community that's why we try to do the thing with the the grocery store and and other things what there and i think what's important is we have to look in our own backyards, so to speak, metaphorically. We have to tend our own, tend our own garden, mm-hmm. uh, because this is overwhelming. When you think about like, oh man, Akron is is struggling in all of these areas. Like, I, there's not much I can do about that. What I can focus on is what's around me, right? And what do I have control over? Mm-hmm. Not going to change everything, but what can I change right now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's one more article we'll put a link to. I don't know we'll have time to, to get around to it, but uh, I'll, I'll just read a, a quick snippet from it. It's called Happy New Year. May your city never become San Francisco, New York, or Seattle, <laughs> or yeah. Portland, Denver, Boston, Dallas, Houston, or Los Angeles yeah. is the subtitle. Um, and it's funny. like it, it starts off like this. Seattle does not want to become San Francisco, a fate that has come to refer exclusively to the city's worst traits. It's $5,000 a month rents, it's homeless encampments, and the ever-present dissidents between those two. As San Francisco's troubles have grown more vivid, so too has its status as other cities' worst nightmare. In Portland, Oakland, and Sacramento, residents and pundits have voiced dread at becoming the next San Francisco, where their middle class is disappearing. And I think that's... Man, both... That is that is the worry in both kinds of cities. Mm-hmm. That's the worry in San Francisco. Middle class is disappearing. Yeah, it's all rich folks. Mm-hmm. It's the worry in Youngstown. The middle class is all disappearing because it's all poor folks. Mm-hmm. And so people are worrying about it from from both sides. Right. San Francisco is worried too about becoming Manhattan. That fear has lurked for decades behind every new proposed skyscraper. And now cranes are erecting them all over downtown. The new Salesforce Tower sits at the center of the of the construction zone, 1,070 feet tall and budding into every vista in the city. Surely there is nothing left to fear in New York, a place that has already tall buildings and high rents, but the pending arrival of Amazon in Long Island City, which is the borough of Queens, as Vice recently put it, has some residents on edge about becoming Seattle on steroids. Mm. The spectator captures the particular mix of high cost. The spectator captures the particular 
mix of high-cost housing, tall buildings, and tech bros. Mm. Our deepest anxieties about the future of where we live are embodied in other cities, in Portlandification, Brooklyn, Brooklynification, Manhattanization. The comparison is seldom a compliment. You don't want to become Manhattan, too dense, Portland, too twee, Boston, too expensive, Seattle, too techie, Houston, too sprawling. Uh, I mean, I think Houston's the best example here. Houston's the most diverse city in the country. Mm. Uh, when I say diverse, I mean like uh, diversely, diver, di- di- it's integrated. Mm. Remember last time we were there? Uh, You're you, talking about socioeconomic uh, uh, backgrounds or, or cultures. It's All yeah. of the above, yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously there's a lot of oil money there, so there are a lot of rich there. There's a lot of middle class there. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember last time we were there, I was hanging out in the coffee shop for a few hours getting some work done. Yeah. And um, we were on tour, and I remember it was the most diverse place I'd ever been in. Mm. There were like old people, young people, black, white, Asian, college students. Uh, there, there were like guys coming like from their construction jobs and like Carhartt, like you know jeans, and yeah. it was it was this whole, it was this beautiful stew of not just diversity in terms of like, oh, they have different melanin from me, mm. but like, oh, they have a different life from me. Yeah. And that's beautiful. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, but uh, I agree. Uh, Houston is rather sprawling. Los Angeles, too congested. Las Vegas, too speculative. Chicago, too indebted. San Francisco has come to stand for the most specific set of horrors. It is a place where extreme poverty and tech wealth occupy the same block while the school teachers and firefighters all live two hours away. This is probably one of the biggest problems, I think. Yeah. When it comes to any you know high, high cost, any city that, that has a high cost of living, you've got really important people uh, that need to you know work inside the city, like teachers and firefighters, but yet they're not paid enough to actually live where they work. Uh-huh. They have you know an hour or two hour commutes every day. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, it is. And the, part of that, can like I remember some of that can be by choice. For me, I stayed in Dayton even when I worked in Cincinnati. Right. I was working downtown Cincinnati and, and I would commute. It was and you did it. You were living in Piqua for a while. <laughs> <laughs> for those What's of you, a Piqua? I know. Have have you ever been in Toledo? Just go a little bit south and then you're in Piqua. <laughs> yeah. Um and Ryan was driving down to Cincinnati several times a week from Piqua, which I think you were, that's a round trip, 180, no, 100, 165, 170 miles, yeah, man. Uh, somewhere around there every day. Um, and so you were doing something similar, um, and it had less to do with the cost of living in Cincinnati, but with just the nature of jobs, right? Yeah. And, and same thing here, it's the, the nature of, of those jobs, right? Yeah. Consider the nuances. Portlandification can be Brooklynified, <laughs> as happens when ambitious media savvy types commercialize twee. Uh, Manhattanization has evolved over time. It once meant building up. Now it increasingly refers to building only for the rich. Mm. Seattleization, meanwhile, is a particularly dire diagnosis. The high housing costs and tech riches have remade the city with startling speed. Man, it's uh, this is very related. It's almost the obverse side of the the coin, Ryan. Hmm. You were talking about earlier, like a city like Detroit or Dayton, where they're a one manufacturing town, mm-hmm. and they the manufacturing leaves, and then the people have no more jobs. Right? right. It's some. It's similar where like Seattle or San Francisco, those two in particular, so much tech. 
but it's not one company. It's not just Amazon. Amazon's right. a big force there, or in, yeah. uh, Salesforce is a big force in in um, San Francisco. But they aren't the. If Salesforce were to leave there, Amazon were to leave, it wouldn't crumble. It wouldn't crumble the whole city. Yeah, the city's not relying on one major manufacturer or business. Yeah, and, and part of that actually becomes a problem because now it's like all these other tech places have displaced affordable housing mm. in these cities and so they're driving from an hour two hours away in order to get into town so it's not that that this isn't a problem it is the question is is it the problem we should be focusing on or should we also focus on these other cities where there's there's real displacement yeah i mean we're talking about when I say real, I mean significant displacement. Mm. Numbers of people who are being displaced or don't have access to even food, like in Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. So, so, and they're being, and just to, you know, uh, I guess reiterate, they are being displaced. What is causing this displacement? Is it the, it's the revitalization? Well, uh, it depends. So, in the cities that we just mentioned, um, these 10 or so, what, San Francisco, New York, Seattle, Portland, Denver, Boston, Dallas, Houston, or Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I, I would put Austin in there for sure. I'd definitely put Denver in there. Yeah. Uh, I'd put Boulder and maybe places like Missoula and Bozeman. Mm. Uh, and and there, there are a handful of others yeah. um, that, that I, I would put in there that um, they're being displaced by the, the rising cost. People are being displaced by rising costs. Mm. However, the displacement actually seems worse than it is yes. and you sent me a great podcast this would be a perfect time to play this before we segue into tidying up <clears throat> well let's um because i got a bunch of stuff written down from this podcast yeah un un unless you, you well, want to let's let's do this let's let's play the recap and then it'll be a great conversation starter for us okay the recap of the podcast cool so here is a snippet from the science versus podcast from gimlet and this episode is called Science Versus Gentrification. What's really happening? And this is toward the end. They, they, they do a really good job of basically explaining the problem and how it is a problem and then how maybe the problem is overstated in other areas. Yes. So let's listen to this recap real quick. So when it comes to gentrification, does it stack up? One, is gentrification forcing lots of people out of their homes? Probably not. As best as science can measure, on average, people aren't leaving their apartments in gentrifying neighbourhoods faster than similar places that haven't gentrified. Two, do newcomers call the cops on their neighbours more often in gentrifying communities? Well, while there's not a lot of data on this, from what we could find, calls to officials about neighbourhood gripes do rise in gentrifying areas, at least in New York. And three, can gentrification lead to things like more jobs and better schools? And if it can, who really benefits? Well, the crime rate might go down and you will get more businesses flocking to the area, which means more jobs. But those jobs aren't necessarily going to the locals. Plus, there's not good evidence that gentrification will help the local school. So from what the science tells us, gentrification isn't the ultimate boogeyman that it's often touted as. But it's not a godsend to a community either. Yeah, so what I like about 
this podcast is it does a good job of showing how, yes, gentrification is not that boogeyman we all make it out to be, but it does it does bring its own problems. But the most interesting thing, man, was how this, it, it goes into depth with how gentrification does not displace or create more eviction or yeah, evictions. So um, again, there are some exceptions to what I'm saying. Like when I, again, when I was doing this research, there was this uh, like a town hall meeting that was going on in Chicago and this gentleman was like, his, he gets up to the mic and he's like, um, you know, let me ask you, uh, I'm sorry. It was with uh, a developer that was building uh, high rises in Chicago. Okay. And this gentleman gets up there and he's like, um, how much, how much are these, how many of these, uh, housing units you're building are they uh how many of them are affordable housing units and the contractor was like none he's like i can't go to a bank and get you know a loan to not make money um i i and then going back to what i said at the beginning of this podcast is that we don't incentivize affordable housing Mm -hmm. and then and then the same gentleman went on to say he's like well the problem with what you're doing is he's like my rent is 900 dollars a month right now and my landlord wrote me a letter and said, because property tax is going up, she has to raise my rent four or $500. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, whether that's true or not, I mean, it's anecdotal. Right. You do have these small problems, but by and large, when they look at these, uh, these neighborhoods that are gentrified or that are revitalized, you're not actually getting a whole lot of displacement. What another thing too, and I, I was trying to skim through this article and find out where it was, but but basically what happens is kind of what we were talking about in these neighborhoods where you've got um, poor people who are stuck there, then you've got rich people moving in, and uh, basically the haves and haves not have nots. The haves they are more their living situation is more stable. Mm-hmm. And because they're more stable, they stay in these neighborhoods longer. So that's really what starts happening is you have um, the have-nots who don't have as stable as as a living situation. They're moving around a lot or they're getting evicted because they can't afford their rent. Right. And then you have the haves moving into this gentrified neighborhood and they do have, uh, they do have the ability uh, to have a more stable living mm-hmm. condition. So... Um, by and large, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is like, that's where the gentrification comes in. You get people who have stable jobs, have a stable income, and then they take over the neighborhood essentially. Right. And, and I think one problem that comes with that is the second thing they highlighted in that conclusion. And Hmm. they went into the whole study about how people move into the neighborhood and they call the cops more. And so white people call the cops. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) by and large, I think that's true. And it's, uh, it, it's a weird sort of thing. It, I think it, that actually lends itself to the bigger problem of gentrification. Mm. To me, the biggest problem is it's not cooperative. It's people moving into a neighborhood. And it's, I mean, I've, I've done a good job of meeting my neighbors where I live, but I know a lot of my neighbors, they don't want to meet me. Yeah. They, they, don't, they don't really care it's funny though like i have one neighbor in in the building who like wouldn't give me the time of day until like i don't know i was living there for about a year and then he saw us on netflix and then all of a sudden Grief. yeah uh and and what i what i realized is like we don't do a good job communicating most of these police calls could be handled in a way like i i had a neighbor who um was just being too loud downstairs mm. and instead of like calling the police on them. Yeah. I'm just like, Hey, can you turn your music down please? Right. And, uh, we, uh, one thing happened with Ella once she was stomping around in her mom's high heels. Uh, 
and like just clank 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 and the neighbor downstairs like called the the building like oh, security wow. on us oh, wow. and i just went down with ella like yeah. to apologize and we ended up becoming friends he was a really good dude and yeah. i'm like see this is a much better way to handle this than just call it there's a time and place for police yes but i'm not going to call the police because ella's walking around in heels or something yeah usually when you call the police it's because the situation has escalated if you go right to the police, you're automatically escalating a situation. And so we're afraid of, of, of the most minor conflicts. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, to me, where the most friction and most tension is with gentrification mm -hmm. is it just creates more tension. If you continue to, if you offload, outsource your conflict, mm -hmm. then you're never going to communicate. Part of communication is conflict resolution. And yeah. what we're not doing well, whether it is in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, or it is in San Francisco, or it's in Dayton, Ohio, is we need to do a better job of trying to resolve conflicts on our own, trying to cooperate, trying to communicate, trying to mm -hmm. express ourselves without the need for a moderator. Yeah, And I think if we can do that, we'll be in a much better spot and we will be able to tidy up these neighborhoods yeah man so so ryan i uh i watched the first episode of tidying up on netflix because it was unavoidable so many people kept tweeting and and facebooking and instagramming and and what do the minimalists think about tidying up and i'm like <laughs> first of all i don't think i'm the let, let me just be really clear i don't think i'm the ideal demographic for this show uh, probably not i don't own a lot of stuff right um, however, that said, I'm going to start with, I'm going to start with some comments that we have here. Okay. I'm going to start with some personal criticisms on it. Okay. And then I'm going to talk about what I liked, but I, I, I'm going to, I think you might be surprised by, by my thoughts on, okay. on this show. Okay. All right. So let's just go into some of the comments from our patrons here. Anna says, the Marie Kondo method helped me start my journey toward living a meaningful life. It helped me let go of so much baggage about five years ago. The new Netflix series has been awesome because it has inspired my husband to be more tidy. My husband is supportive of me, but isn't going to jump into minimalism to the same degree as me. I love how she doesn't judge people about how much stuff they have. It is a good place to start. Yeah. I think that last sentence there, it is a good place to start, is yeah. something worth highlighting, and we'll come back to that. Absolutely. Um, let me talk about what is awesome here. My husband is supportive. Yeah. Beautiful. The, ne ne the Netflix series has been awesome because it inspired my husband. Beautiful. The Marie Kondo method helped me start my journey toward living a meaningful life. The word, the word that stands out there, start mm -hmm. my journey, right? Yeah. Lauren says, my husband and I have been slowly trying to minimize our house since watching your documentary last year, uh, our documentary, Minimalism. We pretty much have only what we need, really, what we really need, and a few things that, that bring us happiness. The KonMari method of tidying up did help us realize, ah, we, ha we, haven't used, we haven't used this in the past year and won't use it in the next 90 days. Or, or read that book that has been sitting on the shelf. Or those shoes I kept that I, that I used to wear but no longer wear, yet I keep them just in case. I did, however, think it pretty much is just a way to tidy up too much stuff. 
And this is a common thread that, that came up. You will often hear us talk about the easiest way to organize your stuff. Yes. Is to get rid of most of it. Absolutely. Let me start with this. Tidying up is not minimalism. <clears throat> and that's where I think people are getting confused about hmm. th these two things. Hmm. Minimalists can tidy up. In fact, it can be a great first step toward becoming a minimalist or living more simply. I think tidying up in and of itself does not lend it, does not lend itself to a simple life. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I had a ra rather... I mean, I think if Marie Kondo would have come to my house at the apex of consumerism, yeah, there's not much she could have done. No, I was tidy as shit. Yeah, you had a lot of stuff, but yeah. it was it was well organized. It was so well organized, yeah. and that for me mm -hmm. was the problem. Yeah. Organizing was actually the problem. Organizing is what allowed me to hide my hoard. Yeah, it's an excuse to hoard. Exactly. Yeah. And it covers up the hoarding. Yeah. It's like I, when I was watching the show, I think I only like watched a couple of the episodes, but that second episode, this husband, he had this huge baseball collection uh -huh. and he was like, man, I got rid of like 75% of what I had and like realized I only need 25% of my baseball collection. And then you go in his, like the hobby room and it's still like, it's really nice and, you know, in bins and organized, but it's like a wall of bins mm -hmm. that, you know, to me, it's like, yes, he did. Um, he he absolutely got rid of seventy five percent of his stuff, became a little bit lighter, probably felt a little bit freer. Mm -hmm. But still, looking at that, it's like, man, that is still a lot, <laughs> still a lot of stuff to hold on to, man. And that's what I'm, I'm not judging him. I'm just yeah, just for me, yeah. And I think what I noticed in in the sort of before and afters with these, it's not that dramatic. However, it might put some people on the right path and it might start to make the room, which is good to discuss other things. It might add some calm to their lives. I remember the very beginning of the first episode, uh, the couple was fighting over laundry. Yeah. And well, they were fighting a lot. It right. It wasn't just laundry. It was a lot of little bickering going Right. On. But the, the first thing that stood out to me, well, the first thing, the very first thing that stood out was the, their little kid who had OCD because he was counting his steps as he walked. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, oh, I don't totally identify with that. It's 44 steps from my car to the uh, front door here. Um, and and what, I, what I realized, though, is like they're not actually fighting about laundry. No. The laundry is just is the vehicle yeah. f for what they actually want to do, which is fight. Yeah, it is a symptom of mm -hmm. something much larger. Yes. Yes. And uh, now with, with when I look at me and Bex, and I, I'd probably do most of our laundry at this point, but like we help each other out. We do whatever we can to, to help mm. as opposed to bickering. And I've realized, uh, well, so when we watched this, this first episode of, of Tidying Up, I said, well, I'm, we're going to do a podcast episode about this. I might as well like, try to do some of our own sort of tidying up around the house, right? Yeah. Um, and we actually, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the community tab on Patreon and I'll post a picture or two of some of the stuff that we, we got rid of. So even even us, we, we could look at our stuff objectively. Now, here's the thing. There was even some tension with, with me and Bax because we want to please each other. Mm -hmm. um, and Bex owns more stuff than me. Mm. and it just is what it is and it, she uses the stuff she has a ton of camping gear she has uh, ski equipment and boxes and bins and and the thing that drives me crazy about these boxes and bins hmm. is they are not all the same bins 
<laughs> they're like, different, they're you different got colors, one clear bin, one blue. Oh, wow. it's not even that dramatic. It's yeah. like two different black bins, and I'm like, they're not the that same one's a darker one. black. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Wow. Um, and what we realized, like, I want her to have her stuff that that adds value to her life. Of course, she wants to not have stuff that bothers me. Mm. And the way to have it not bother me is, well, yeah, we're gonna have to replace some of these bins so that it's uniform. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're both going to get what we want out of this because in my ideal world, I wouldn't own any of that stuff. Yeah. But it's not ideal for me because then she's not getting the same value. Right. That would actually be less ideal for me. I want her to have the stuff. I want Ella to have all of the, the toys that she's going to play with. Mm-hmm. I just don't want her to have the toys she's not going to play with. Right. And so uh, we got rid of some stuff as we were going through this. But more important, as we saw in that first episode, we're able to make room for the conversations. And I think that's really where where the the KonMari method helps is it starts to make room for folks. It's a start to the conversations. I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, it can, you know, can tidying up be a part of minimalism? Sure. But just having things organized... um, and we're not like the you know we don't write certificates and dub people minimalists i mean but Unless when i you're part of the five dollar true fan that's right. right those are the only true min- no you know it's it's like um i don't know man i don't want to discourage people from getting organized i don't want to discourage people from from tidying up i don't want to discourage people from watching that show i do but not not not, not i want them to watch the show <clears throat> I, I want to discourage them from just tidying up how about that's that exactly where i'm going beautiful it's like it's great as a uh, as a piece of the journey um but man minimalism is it's not it's about what we do with all of our resources so it could be money it could be the the hoard that we have it could be the time it could be our attention how dare you spill water all over this table <laughs> but 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 yes i mean so tidying up is a i think can absolutely be a piece of someone's minimalist journey and like we have you know highlighted it's a can be a great start um but once you start to uh, uh look for other things to tidy up um I, th- I think that is what really creates a meaningful minimalist journey and that to me is why it made so much sense to to say gentrification and tidying up really what we're talking about in both instances is revitalizing either your life, mm, yeah. your household, like your city. And if tidying up is a first step for you and using her little you know, methods or the folding techniques or whatever, if that's helpful for you, mm-hmm. awesome. It's so amazing, dude, like how she starts each... Uh, well, I've only seen two episodes, but each, epi- each episode she starts before they really get into the tidying up. They like have this little ritual of like thanking the home... Hate it and thanking this stuff. I, I know that's, 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 I, d- does not surprise me at all. <laughs> I love it, dude. I love it because it makes it actually what that does. It's not about thank you microphone. It's not about the relationship between me and a microphone. Right. What it is is it's this moment of really appreciating what your home is, mm-hmm. what you want your home to be, mm. uh, and likewise with your stuff. So for me, I love it because it really does help people to. Um, to just look at their things in a different light yeah. rather than just looking at them like in inanimate objects. I mean, they are inanimate objects. Um, yes, yeah. they are. And the, the thing, there's two things that I really dislike about that. One is my father was schizophrenic. He used to talk to the microwave. <laughs> <laughs> and so, what, that's not normal to do that? 
Uh, I, I wish I was joking, but like, 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 legitimately, like he talked to inanimate objects, and so like, there's a personal bias there as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, there's another word though that mm. really stood out to me that I think is part of the problem here. Hmm. She talked about cherish, cherish, like keeping only th- the things that you can cherish. Oh yeah, that's a slippery slope. I don't want you to cherish anything. Don't cherish your stuff. Yeah. This, and Ella and I have been going through this. We, we've been having these conversations because she's like, I love this dress. And I finally have her saying, I enjoy this dress. Yeah. And I love mom or I love you. Or, uh, and uh, she'll still say, I love chocolate. And But... But, but yeah, that's normal. You, you can love chocolate. Yeah, there you but, go. I mean, cherishing is such a slippery slope, man. I mean, I could find a lot of things to cherish. The problem with cherishing is that you are creating rules that say, uh, my life is more meaningful because I have this object that I cherish so much. And if you right. lose that in a fire, mm-hmm. what, you're not allowed to be happy anymore? Or you, you'll never be as happy without that object? I or mean, what if it just stops adding value to your life? Are you still supposed to cherish it? Yeah. And the thing is, if you cherish it, you will continue to cherish it yeah. long past its useful period. Yeah. And so there's a useful period. And that's why I always talk about adding value. What serves a purpose or brings you joy? Mm-hmm. That is what is useful. That's what adds value. But cherishing, to me, is a synonym for clinging. Yeah. And I don't want you to cling to anything. I don't want you to give meaning to your material possessions right. either. I think our material possessions are, are there to enhance our experience of life, not to be cherished in and of themselves. Totally agree. My, what my, other criticisms we got on the... Do we, we get any criticisms let's, of let's the see. show on Patreon? Yeah. Uh, Miles said, I enjoyed it. The woman whose husband had died brought me... <coughs> To a few tears, to be honest. Every family got rid of a lot of stuff. Every family was happier and more able to love their their, their life afterward. It was accessible, non-judgmental, and useful. Even minimalists need to organize and store things. I I agree with that to a great extent. It's If you get rid of 90% of the stuff, though, Mm-hmm. There's far less to organize and store. Yeah, we have an entire like we have entire closets in our home where it's like there's one closet we have uh, a vacuum and that's it. Like yeah. it's just one one closet. And so um, thinking about, I could fill all that stuff. In fact, I think we feel feel compelled to to fill the space with stuff. And. That was my problem. I had a yeah. big suburban house, and so get a huge I felt, basement. If you didn't have all those bins of things down there, what would you have down there besides a ping pong table and a workout bench? I'd be less complete, right? right? And yeah. I would feel empty inside yeah. as yeah. a result, or at least so I thought. All right, uh, Miles goes on to say, "I've spent a great deal of social credit arguing with friends who laid into MK or posted articles about how she wanted us to throw all all our books away, which is not true. She has this thirty. 30 book rule I, to me that that's a, any any draconian rule is a problem mm-hmm. um guidelines are much more helpful like even our rules we, we say it in jest like the the 90 90 rule is a good example you go to our website and look at the 90 90 rule it's like mm-hmm. hey this is what works for us well, but these are boundaries you, these are boundaries that we have right or the, the word i use is guideline mm-hmm. um but you know what might work for you? 180 days. That's what works for Rebecca, my wife. Yeah. She used the 180-day rule instead of the 90-90 rule. Figure out what works that, for you. That works really well for her. And so the the question is, what is the boundary? What is the guideline? And if we're looking at the book thing as 30 as a as a guideline, great. But mm-hmm. you know what? If if the arbitrary number 
is 30 and it becomes this draconian rule it's like well maybe i don't even want 30 books now i have to own 30 books everyone has to have the same rule right that's yeah i I mean i wish it was possible but like the truth is uh, by the way i think you can be a minimalist and own more than 30 books i think you can be a hoarder and own zero books yeah yeah and 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 so that's something to think about Uh, after pointing out every unread book in your shelf as a promise broken to yourself and that bookshelves are generally intellectual snobbery and virtue signaling. Look at what I've read. Right. Yeah, so yeah. true. Some people aren't... Uh, yeah, there's a, a thing that I... I mean, I wrote on our website years ago, 2011, about you know, getting rid of 2,000 books. Right. And because I realized that I started reading more once I had fewer books because mm-hmm. Paradox of Choice was, was moved out of the way. Yeah. But also, uh, it was like, look at the calculus textbook I still have. Look right. at me. I know calculus. Not really. I couldn't even tell you the quadratic formula. Um, there was a great deal of defensive anger in the wider non-minimalist world. Same. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I see that. And I'm certainly not. If anything, I think the KonMari method is extremely helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. And for some of those people, a small subset, it can be a gateway toward minimalism. Another small subset, it can unfortunately, like for people like me, mm. it could have also been a gateway to hoarding. Yeah. If I learned about tidying up, it would have allowed me to continue to like just do a better job meticulously mm. covering up my organized hoarding. I mean, dude, the whole point of what we do, this podcast, the books, documentary, it's it's helping people to live a meaningful life and if tidying up helps you live a more meaningful life then great mm-hmm. um yes making it the end all be all is um well yeah it's it's a bit draconian and, and honestly like it's it doesn't help you with your other resources i guess but but yes just again i'm just trying to i'm not trying to discourage people from tidying up i'm just no. i'm just saying that like don't don't think that you can buy okay, I've got 12 bins of books and that's all I'm going to have. Right. And like put all these draconian rules in place and then all of a sudden your life is going to be meaningful. Um, right. it's, it's, it is a constant work in progress and it has so much more to do than just stuff. Spending several hundred dollars at the container store is not going to make your life more meaningful. Right. However, it might start to make some room for you to start asking those questions. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, the thing that was really popular a week or two ago on Twitter, I, I sent out this tweet. Someone was like, um, it was something about Marie Kondo versus the minimalist for oh, some yeah. reason. People, and I just said, so. you know, it's the how-to versus the why-to. Yeah. Perhaps both are necessary. Yeah. And I think the how-to stuff, she does it way better than, than we do mm-hmm. um, with respect to tidying up. Yeah. Not the minimalism stuff, but with respect to tidying up, she does a better job of organizing. Absolutely. So personal home organizing, she's a master at that. When it comes to life organizing, life revitalizing, I think it starts to... We we start to make the space for those questions. Mm -hmm. Why have I given so much meaning to all this stuff? What's truly important in my life? Who's the person I want to become? These are questions that we start to ask after we deal with the external clutter so we can look inward deal with that internal clutter um what are the criticisms let me see here connor said but what people said about tidying up connor says i think it's excellent for people getting interested in organizing Mm. but there isn't enough emphasis on lifestyle yeah rather it seems more focused on material possessions and aesthetics yeah so it's a piece of the whole journey Yeah. yeah it's a piece of the puzzle Annabelle says, I was curious as to what you guys had to say about this as well. Before becoming 
a minimalist, my mother read Marie Kondo's book and told me about the life-changing magic of tidying up. My mother told me to purge items that didn't, quote, spark joy, close quote, for me. I, f- I found this to be parallel to the adding value mantra of minimalism. Huh. I think the show is a good introduction to those looking for looking to defog their lives, but it does not address reducing your consumption. That was a big theme that came up over and over, Ryan. It did not, at least from what I saw, address the, the habit. Yes, I can figure out how to tidy up my closet. Mm-hmm. But if I don't ask myself, like, why have I been buying these clothes? Why do I want to purchase more? Like, what's the real reason? Like, I, I can make up a reason. Like, sure. oh, I, uh, I was talking to someone from uh, one of the TV networks recently. We had a meeting with, and she was like, I know that that new cardigan is not going to make me happy. And yet I see it on Instagram and I, I want to buy it. And so I had to pause and she was doing this experiment of uh, she's not buying anything online for 30 days, which I, I might try out. I think mm. it's that starts to help you address like, why am I buying these things? What is it about the past consumption and how do I stop these things from coming in going forward, which yeah. is equally important. Yeah. So that, that one came up over and over. Kayla says, no disrespect to people who, who it has helped start their minimalism journey, but I think uh, the tidying up is just an excuse to keep your crap and organize it differently. <laughs> yeah, it can be. Yeah, it certainly can be. Yeah. It's not getting to the root of the problems. Putting so much emphasis into, quote, loving our objects, I, I, like I said, cherishing the objects, doesn't seem healthy and actually comes across as making it harder to let things go in the end. That is, for me, the biggest criticism. The biggest superpower I have for minimalism is my detachment. It's my... Uh, detachment from the things that I should be detached from. Right. Detached from, my willingness to walk away from any object whatsoever. That's like the that's true freedom right there. That man. is freeing. Yeah, and cherishing stuff in particular is not freedom. It's just creating a different, more beautiful kind of prison. Yeah. Uh, Connor said, "I agree uh, with Kayla. It's more aesthetic than anything, though it has helped many people start taking action on clutter. Agree with that. If your house yeah. is overrunning with stuff, this might be a good first step." Yeah. Just keep going after that. Mm-hmm. Let's see if there's one or two more here that we can we can point out here. Um, Megan said, I found her book to be quite helpful. A useful way to deal with the emotional strain of letting go. And also encouragement to ditch all items not currently adding value to my life. I see the show as being less helpful, but still good mm-hmm. encouragement. The word encouragement stood out to me. Sometimes that's really what people need. Uh, it's not n- not just the how-to, but being encouraged. Like, hey, there are other people who are doing this. Yeah. And other people are experiencing some satisfaction. Yeah. So I think by and large, Ryan, the the sort of gentrification, the revitalization of tidying up is by and large a good thing. Yeah. And we can be thankful. We can be grateful for, for uh, professional organizers like Marie Kondo that help mm. people out with the how side. Yeah. And especially when you as the listener, the viewer, couple that with the why, your own why, because your why is going to be different from the people in the show. Yeah. If you couple it, then that's when you have a recipe for success. Yeah. We had a few questions here about the gentrification as well. Maybe we can answer a couple of those, Ryan, before cool. we close out. Yeah. Brandy says, personally, I live in the Ohio River Valley and work around Huntington, West Virginia. Recently, in an effort to bring in more economic growth and revitalize the area, the city has begun making unaffordable luxury rental properties Mm. 
uh, to the area. Well, first off, I would just say I doubt it's the city that's doing that. Right. These are probably developers. There are maybe some cases where sit, the city will provide unaffordable I mean, housing, but generally that has to do with taxes. Yeah, so the city's not like subsidizing these affluent homes. I, I, I would guess not. Right. So, so you have a couple options here. Um, that developer could not come in at all. Yeah. Um, and those housing units just wouldn't exist, period. Mm-hmm. Um, which may be better for some folks. Um, or that developer comes in and provides a housing for people who can afford the housing. Mm-hmm. The problem still remains in either case, right? In either case, you don't have affordable housing. Right. And I think that's ultimately the problem. Um, and what Brandy says here, it means that more and more people are struggling to afford rent and other properties are raising rent. Uh, other properties will raise rent only when they can. Um, and I think that's an important thing to note. My, my landlord tried to raise the rent on me significantly this year. Mm-hmm. And we had to had several we had several days of negotiation. Mm. Now their property tax was raised, mm-hmm. and so they had to do something. They were going to be in the negative mm. on the property yeah. uh, if they didn't raise my rent a little bit. Wow! Um, but I got them to raise it far less than the five percent they wanted to. Wow! And so I think part of that has to do with um, their ability to raise it and what the needs are. Um, and so, yes, rents will continue to go up virtually everywhere. That's yeah. that's also the cost of inflation. Absolutely. Um, we, we have to think about that. Um, the question then becomes, um, what what are we willing to pay? What are we able to pay? And what are the alternatives yeah. uh, from where we are right now? Um, let's see what else she says. It's simply unattainable at the moment. Um, uh, Wait, I understand wanting to change the demographic from drug users and violence to up-and-coming folks or families, but it's simply unattainable at the moment. I agree with that. It's unattainable in the moment. Mm -hmm. These are long-term changes. Even even the relatively short-term things with the Detroit thing, the condo bought in 2012, sells seven years later for, or six years later for a million dollars. That's six years of, of dramatic change. Yeah. And so it, even then, when it seems like it happens overnight, mm-hmm. it's six years. I mean, imagine everything you've done in the last six years. And so where you're at right now might be appreciably different six years from now. Now, as we pointed out in the the podcast episode, The Science Versus thing, mm-hmm. one of the unfortunate factors here is a lot of the folks living in these revitalized areas may not be the beneficiaries of the new jobs that come right. to those areas. Yeah. And that is a problem yeah. for sure. All right. Another question here from Melanie. Melanie says, gentrification. I've had a vision of how my life would look like a large dining room table where I would host dinner parties with the matching plates and cloth napkins, inherited silverware and crystal. This is just one small example. How do you let go of those visions that no longer serve you without feeling that you are failing yourself or your definition of success? You've got to find new visions. Ooh, yes, indeed. I mean, that's that's key, man. One of the more empowering visions, right? Yeah. Well, it's funny for me. Like I, you know, I often think about like if we had if we had Marie Kondo money, <laughs> how many millions of books did she sell? Um, Seven, I think. Dude, I would love I would love to be able. Uh, to, to like build schools over in like Southeast Asia when when we did that school in Laos it just made me want to do more yeah um, it, there's a lot of uh, a lot of 
third world type situations we have in this country, I would love to help out. Um, well, with the grocery store. So yeah, in Dayton, we we are helping build the co-op. It's a three million dollar co-op. Yeah. Imagine if we had three extra million dollars laying around. What we could do with that? Yeah, dude. So like, I very much want to make money. Uh, but the difference now is that the money that I make, I don't look forward to. Um, you know, buying a mansion or buying a Ferrari. I really, I will get a Tesla one day, one day. But, you know, but, but my rule, my my rule is, is like, if I'm going to spend, you know, 60,000 bucks on a car, I'm going to be able to also give $60,000 to, you know, to, to some charity or to build some schools, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but that's just it. It's, it's finding those new things to, to aim for. So it used to be, oh, I'm going to own a house here and a house there. And I'm going to have a, you know, nice big six figure, uh, a car that cost me six figures. And, and, and now it's just my, my goals have changed. It still involves money. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually this really good talk. Uh, God, maybe I can find it and send it over to, to Sean, but it's a, one of the ex executives from Facebook. Um, I forget what he does now. I think he's like works for hospitals or something, but he does this really good talk about how, um, money is power mm. and it absolutely is. Mm-hmm. And if you use that power to benefit other people, then, um, I mean, that's that for me, like that's the ideal way to, to spend, you know, millions and millions of dollars. It's also, it's not just power. It's perceived power too, where, yeah. where you see someone like Jeff Bezos and, He's an extreme example, but right. someone like that, and you're like, I'm more willing to listen to them because they have this idea of success. Yeah. With someone like you and me, it's not about money, obviously, right. but people see this idea of we've redefined what success is, and it doesn't have to be $135 billion. No. Um, and it, it, Just half of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll be happy with just a couple billion. <laughs> Uh, no, oh and, and yeah, you, you're right, Ryan, changing the vision. And then also, uh, I really like, this is maybe just a, a little add on thought. I really like what Rob Bell talks about. Hmm. They use the fine China every night. Oh yeah. I uh, do like that. Because they got it from like a wedding gift, you know, 20 mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. And he's like, why wait for the special occasion? It's always a special occasion. So if you're going to have it then use it. And if you're not using it, don't have it. Yeah. You could tweet that podcast, Sean. Love it. All right. Catherine says, I have a question of how does one not buy into the gentrification of American houses, i.e. purchasing, oh, this is good, purchasing the new granite countertops, cupboards, new appliances, etc. I think it's an easy thing to feel like you must up, must upgrade your, quote, old house built in 1996 when everything is perfectly fine. Just not up to the standards of your neighborhood. Okay, so two things there. If you want to upgrade, do it for you, not for the standards of your neighborhood. Yeah. Even if even if it's like for aesthetic reasons, it's because you really, you know, enjoy how a granite countertop looks versus the linoleum one that's all chipped up. I mean, fine. Right. I mean, the que- the, the, the real question is is, you know, in that situation is can you afford it? And then is this the best use of that money? Absolutely. Yeah, and if, if you can answer that, great. But it shouldn't be, oh, man, this is someone, I really want to fulfill someone else's vision of my house, right? Would this look good on Instagram as a bad reason to do anything? Mm. You could tweet that too, Sean. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jenny says, I live in Denver, a city which has seen rapid gentrification in recent years. While we can all agree that cleaner, safer communities are something to strive for, how can we keep the juggernaut of gentrification from 
pushing communities out of their neighborhoods. Additionally, is there a way to gentrify with compassion? Love that question. Mm. A way to reform an area while respecting the basic human rights of those that society might consider, quote, undesirable, such as drug addicts or homeless populations. Mm. It doesn't have to be drug addicts or homeless populations. It could just be people who are different from you in any way. Yeah. And the best way to gentrify with compassion is to revitalize. And part of revitalization has to do with communication. Yeah. So ultimately, communication lends itself to compassion. Mm. There's another tweet for you, Sean. Good, You're man. on fire. Um, and, and so... Yes, I think there is a, a life-tidying magic of gentrification sure. here. And uh, ultimately, it has to do with, with revitalizing areas of our life, our homes, our cities, our community by being compassionate. Yeah. And if we can communicate better, we can better understand the needs of the, the people around us. It doesn't mean we're always going to agree. And, and just because someone else has granite countertops in your neighborhood, you can communicate with them and realize that that's not what you want in your home. Uh, and, and that's totally okay. You can have differing opinions, but still coexist in the same place. Yeah. I, th- I think our final or my final stance on gentrification is it's not the boogeyman we make it out to be, but there certainly are inherited problems with it that we should focus more on as a community and we should focus on the opposite problems as well mm-hmm. the the displacement by decline yeah. is a much bigger problem the gutted neighborhoods that have been declining for 50 years now mm-hmm. uh, those are displacing people at a much more rapid and alarming rate and causing uh, a lot more generational poverty and we need find w- find ways to combat that going forward all right patrons thank you so much for your time today we're awesome we'll be back in the next couple weeks um man uh branding and products are the next two episodes we're going to talk about we already have a bunch of questions from you all enjoying this february special um these special maximal episodes and we'll be back in march hopefully as long as my health stays uh stays up i got a a colonoscopy this uh a couple days (laughs) An endoscopy, too. It's a top and bottom endoscopy. They got to put you under for that, huh? Yeah. I guess so. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, but... uh, Suck to be awake through all that. I hope they don't use the same tube. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you'll never guess which order they're doing it in. (laughs) It's an order that might surprise you. (laughs) Thanks for that, Pete Holmes. All right, y'all. Love people use things. We'll see you next time. See ya. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Every little thing that you gotta have Every little thing that you gotta have you gotta reach for and you gotta grab oh i bet that you'd be fine without it so tear your eyes away or tear